Hello everyone and welcome. This is Reading Hannah Arendt with Roger Berkowitz. The podcast of the Hannah Arendt Center for Politics and Humanities at Bard College. The Hannah Arendt Center provides an intellectual space for passionate, uncensored, nonpartisan thinking in the spirit of Hannah Arendt. My name is Jana Mader, and I'm the Director of Academic Programs at the Hannah Arendt Center. It is my pleasure to introduce Roger Berkowitz, Founder and Academic Director of the Hannah Arendt Center. Roger Berkowitz is a Professor of Politics, Philosophy and Human Rights at Bard College. He's the winner of the 2019 Hannah Arendt Prize for Political Thought given by the Heinrich Böll Foundation. Stay on for more info at the end of today's episode. Our current book is The Origins of Totalitarianism, published in 1951. Make sure to subscribe to not miss an episode. Hi, Roger. It's great to see you. Hi, Jana. Great to be with you. We're back this week with a regular chapter reading from our current book, Origins of Totalitarianism. And you will be discussing chapter five, which is the first one of part two on imperialism. The chapter title is The Political Emancipation of the Bourgeoisie. You will be talking about Arendt's definition of the nation state, older ideas of imperialism and modern idea of it, the role of the bourgeoisie and the role of power and money, Arendt's reading of Hobbes and the rise of the mob and the decline of the nations. Before we start and you dive deeper into the chapter, could you just tell us a quick summary of her main points and key aspects of this um, important but very complicated and complex chapter. Yeah, Jana, thank you. I mean, really, it is a crucial chapter and and maybe one of the hardest ones in the book. Um, uh, you know, the the book, the, the chapter is on the political emancipation of the bourgeoisie, as you said, and we're all like, what's the bourgeoisie and what are their political emancipation and how does that have to do with imperialism, let alone totalitarianism? You know, the bourgeoisie is a particular class that emerges uh, that uh, is not the aristocracy, not the working class, but uh, acquires uh, capital and money and invests it and owns factories, owns shops, and is really about um, making money. Uh, and the bourgeoisie generally was not very political. Uh, they, they actually, all they wanted to do was make money, live with their families, have their hobbies, uh, stay at home, whatever. And they just wanted to be left alone. And, and this is really the emergence of liberalism, right? Where the liberal state, you know, sets out basic rules. You can do this. You can't do this. You can do whatever you want as long as you don't harm other people. Um, and the bourgeoisie really aimed to, to, to stay out of politics. The political emancipation of the bourgeoisie tells the story of how the bourgeoisie entered politics. And they entered politics when the home markets for capitalism, for their goods, for their factories, um, became saturated. And they wanted to make money by selling their goods in other countries. And they also wanted to get cheaper raw materials to make their goods with. And so that means they had to set up factories in other countries. They had to sell in other countries. And that left them uh, vulnerable to the other countries stealing their property or uh, passing laws that protected local uh, vendors or local factories instead of, you know, international factories. And so the bourgeoisie entered politics in order to say to the state, give me your armies so that you can come and protect uh, my investments. They, we wanted the investments to be not risky. In fact, we wanted them to be almost assured to make money. And, and this is the beginning of imperialism. What this means, though, is that Imperialism is the uh, overwhelming of national borders, the overwhelming of particular nation states and their ability to control uh, how much they pay, the rules of their factories. You know, we have now a global order where, you know, if one state tries to create tariffs or rules about other states building factories, that's considered uh, interference with trade. And so this is a massive decline in the power and importance of nation states because now you have this sort of imperial 
economy or globalized economy as we have today. She says that the nationalist institutions tried to resist the brutality and megalomania of imperialist aspirations. They tried to resist the bourgeois attempt to use the state as an instrument of violence, and yet they couldn't. And the turning point in this really comes, she says, when the German bourgeoisie staked everything on the Hitler movement and aspired to rule uh, not only Germany, but all of Europe uh, with the help of a mob. And at that point, the national institutions were too weak. They had they had given up control to imperialists and imperialist politicians. And the bourgeoisie thus succeeded in destroying the nation state. And she says this was their goal because they wanted, um, in a sense, to have you know, the imperialist army and the imperialist mob at their disposal. But this was a Pyrrhic victory. It was, it didn't last, she says, because once the bourgeoisie really did destroy um, the nation state, the mob then took over and proved quite capable of taking care of politics by itself and then liquidated the bourgeoisie along with other, all the other classes and institutions. And this is the story um, she's telling here about how in the pursuit of power and ever more profit, the bourgeoisie um, embraced imperialism and created an entire imperialist class that overwhelmed the limiting, moral limiting, geographically limiting um, institutions and functions of the nation state. And then they did so by empowering a mob of people in the army and in and in the imperialist service to help them. And then that mob took over and eliminated all the um, institutions of the nation state that could protect individuals from the rampage of uh, imperialist seeking power and money and profit. And, and that's the, that's the sort of story of um, how the bourgeoisie helped bring about the decline of the nation state, the birth of imperialism. And this begins the march towards totalitarianism, which we'll uh, encounter throughout this chapter. Thank you. A main theme, like you just said in this chapter, is that uh, imperialism and racism abroad destroyed the nation state back home. And I was wondering if you could uh, briefly talk about uh, is, if, whether it is possible or not to be tyrannical abroad, but democratic at home, which seems common for Western democracies right now, and just connect it a little bit to today and anti-imperialism today. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, on one level, when you send a lot of your smart young people around the world and tell them, you know, you have to administer these people that we don't think can administer themselves in their government, they begin to think, oh, well, we want to administer. That means we don't want to follow the laws. We want to, you know, do what's the most efficient, do the easiest, employ the police, control the population. And they begin to rule by decree instead of um, ruling by democracy or ruling by the law. All right, we'll really talk about this in, in chapter seven on, on bureauc race and bureaucracy, um, where she talks about how um, we create a whole racialized bureaucracy through imperialism. But, you know, once you create this world, uh, it can boomerang back on your own nation state, on your own uh, consensual democracy and legal democracy. And uh, increasingly, people say, well, we could rule more efficiently at home if we, you know, didn't have to follow all these rules and procedures, which which make it much harder to govern. Why don't we 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 govern a little bit like we do in in the provinces? And and so, um, you know, you can see how that uh, undermines the basic faith and idea in the rule of law. You know, uh, Arendt here is talking about imperialism and. We hear a lot about imperialism today, and um, I think especially on the left, um, anti-imperialism. And for Arendt, imperialism is about uh, expansion and the expansion of power um, of a particular class, the bourgeoisie. You know, anti-imperialism today uh, is, is, is really not really about power. Uh, it's, it's sort of, it's really shifted its valence quite a bit. 
you know, it's it's what what are anti-imperialists really about? Well, I mean, I, they're not really even, um, you know, anti-capitalists uh, so far as I can tell. I mean, because they don't seem to be engaged with um, the proletariat. Uh, they don't seem to be um, really offering uh, communism or socialism as a meaningful alternative to capitalism. I think that uh, a lot of the anti-imperialist left today is is driven by what um, Simon Critchley in a book a number of years ago uh, called Infinitely Demanding um, called a kind of enormous disappointment um, of the left. You know, all the main left movements, including Marxism, socialism, um, utopianisms of all sort, have failed. And we're really left with nothing to fight for. Um, and the one idea that seems uh, that we are still, that we're stuck with, or we're, we, we still have, is a kind of um, moral uh, embrace of, of victims of imperialism. Uh, what Simon Critchley in that book calls indigeneity or the indigenous people. And so what you see now is anti-imperialism is connected with something called, you know, a critique of settler colonialism. Um, and the problem is, of course, that every uh, country in the world is a settler colonial country. There's not one that's not, um, whether it's the United States or China or France or Germany or Russia uh, or India or China or Israel. Um, and so there's really no realistic opportunity of ending settler colonialism because anyone who ends up you know living in a place is going to eventually become becomes the settler colonial uh people there and so what's what simon critchley says is politics we 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 turn away from politics and towards ethics or morals and and so um the anti-imperialism struggle today um is not really a struggle against imperialism as Arendt understood it as as a kind of uh increase in power and expansion of power it's really a, a moral movement um uh, almost an identity movement uh in which people um embrace a kind of ethical or moral stance that says we're against anyone who's in power and we're always in favor of those they've they've disempowered or displaced and and that's you know it, it's it, it's it's a fascinating and and important movement but it's one that really uh ignores um politics uh as Arendt understood it uh and ignores also reality um you know because it basically it becomes a protest movement more than a politics movement it's a it's a movement of constant protest against the powerful in the name of some idea of who's the indigenous victim um but without any real solution because there's there's no in the end there's always there's no in, there's no true indigenous victim uh everyone is you know there's no place where there's one indigenous population and so the anti-imperialist movement is really uh, um, has become more of a protest, ethical, moral movement than a political movement, and and that's quite different from how Arendt understood it. Thank you, Roger. Welcome, everybody. My name is Roger Berkowitz. I'm the founder and academic director of the Hannah Arendt Center here at Bard College, and it's my pleasure to be with you today. This is the uh, virtual reading group, and we're continuing to read Hannah Arendt's magnum opus, great book, uh, The Origins of Totalitarianism. The book is divided into three parts. The first one we've just finished. It's the first four chapters of the book on anti-Semitism. And um, for those of you who missed any of them, you can go back and, and watch them either on, on YouTube or uh, on our podcast. Today, we start the second part of the book imperialism so it goes anti-semitism imperialism totalitarianism you know uh one hesitates to say such a thing uh but let me say that without a doubt imperialism is the core of the book this this section um you know anti-semitism is important it's part of what she calls the elements of totalitarianism um i i think there's no doubt that she thinks totalitarianism uh, in some important sense um is based in and related to anti-Semitism. You know, why did this small problem of a small group of people, the Jews, um, become so deeply important uh, in, in, in Nazi ideology? She thinks that, that you have to consider 
this idea of ideology and the role of ideological racism, anti-Semitism. Similarly, when, when we talk more about the, the Soviet Union and the rise of Bolshevism, uh, we'll talk about an ideological racism, a, a racism uh, based in, in classism, a hatred of the bourgeoisie. But as important as that is, the driving force of totalitarianism, as, as she understands it, is, is developed and articulated and um, imagined out of her understanding of the rise of imperialism. And so this, this section on imperialism uh, is really the, the theoretical um, centerpiece of the book. Within this section on imperialism, this first chapter on the political emancipation of the bourgeoisie is, in my opinion, the, the really central philosophical foundation for her understanding of the origins of totalitarianism. I'm not trying to say it's the only one, right? The whole point of this book is there's not only one origin. Uh, there's many. So anti-Semitism is one. Classism is another. But imperialism can be understood generally as one of the uh, elements of totalitarianism. And if, and, if, and if we do it that way, it's clearly the most important one. But if we break imperialism up into its component parts, what she calls uh, the political emancipation of the bourgeoisie is 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 likely uh, the most important. I, I say that, you know, and then I want to take it back, but let's let me at least draw it out and, and we can talk about it. She says in the preface written for um, the section on imperialism, she says this book deals only with the strictly European colonial imperialism whose end came with liquidation of British rule in India. It tells the story of the disintegration of the nation state that proved to contain nearly all the elements necessary for the subsequent rise of totalitarian movements and governments. Okay. It tells the story of the disintegration of the nation state that proved to contain nearly all the elements necessary for the rise of totalitarianism. Now, in chapter nine, at the end of this imperialism section, we'll talk about, the, we'll get to, in fact, the disintegration of the nation state. And that's going to be one of the most important chapters as well. But it's in this chapter that she um, outlines and explores three, three trends, three uh, happenings, three events that, uh, in her mind, make the destruction of the nation state, uh, the disintegration of the nation state, a fait accompli. The first of those is what she calls the rise of expansion as a political principle. Uh, the second is going to be power and the bourgeoisie. Uh, and, and here it's going to be the elevation of power as the central um, uh, aim and unlimited goal of political life. And the third is the alliance of capital and the mob, uh, where we talk about the way that superfluous men uh, come to be uh, allied with an elite and become to take a kind of pleasure and meaning in uh, national nationalism now understood as world domination, which leads to a kind of racism. And, and so we'll, we'll get there as well. Part one uh, of this chapter is the disintegration of the nation state and the rise of the expansion as a political principle. The basic premise here, right? And it's a complicated chapter. We'll go through it a little bit. But the basic premise here is that nation states, right? Whether you're talking about Germany or France or Italy or Russia, a state that, and, I, and I, let me just help us out here a little bit. A nation state is a hyphenated word. It's a state. And by a state, she means uh, a political body governed by laws in which all people within the state are treated equally. But it's a nation state. And as a nation state, there are national people. So there are Germans in Germany and there are French people in France and there are Italians in Italy and Russians in Russia. But there are also other people. And the problem with a nation state is that it's a contradictory idea. It's a paradox. On the one hand, a nation state is supposed to treat everybody equally. On the other hand, if it's a German nation state or a French nation state, 
it's going to tend to, tra- to, to treat its na- national people better than its um, non-national peoples. And, and so this, um, this conflict between the nation and the state in the nation state uh, is going to be um, very important for Arendt as we continue reading this book. In this chapter, however, um, she's, she's not yet there. She's talking about nation states simply as bounded entities. What do I mean by bounded entities? Well, if you have a nation state, you have borders. And within that, the nation state largely, at least, uh, you know, in, in most instances, is based on consent of the people within those borders. And so while they may violate certain rights of people within those borders, um, the nation state largely has to, has to maintain the support of its population. And so the, there's a limit. I mean, it may be a, maybe not as much of a limit as we like, but there's a limit to how um, oppressive it can be to parts of its population. That limit is set by things like the fact that it needs a consensus. It also is set by the fact that there are institutions within the nation state and that it is generally run by the rule of law. Uh, and so she says, this nation state is a bounded entity that has certain limits. If you expand beyond the nation state, however, um, those limits disappear. And that's where imperialism comes in, because imperialism, based on this principle of expansion, suggests that expansion becomes the permanent and supreme aim of politics. Right? This is on page 125. Um, and if expansion uh, is the aim of politics, the ambition of imperialism is for one people to rule over others in an unlimited and unimpeded way, because we have to constantly expand. And this expansionist drive has no end. Imperialism thus implies a relentless movement to dominate the world. So when she says at the beginning of this section on um, expansion, right, she says that expansion is everything, said Cecil Rhodes. And Cecil Rhodes, as, as I'm sure many of you know, is was a, an Englishman who uh, went and ended up uh, creating a huge amount of, of wealth in the gold mines, for whom Rhodesia is named, was named after, and was one of the leading uh, imperialists of, of the age. And I should say of the age, Arendt has a very particular definition of that age. Uh, it goes from 18, um, I think, 1884 to 1914. Uh, that's, the, that's the period. Um, that we are are talking about. Expansion is everything, said Rhodes. And he continues, every night he saw these stars overhead, these vast worlds, which we could never reach. And he said, I would annex the planets if I could. What, what is this desire to annex the planets, this desire to expand? Why is expansion everything? Um, because the imperialist expansion is an ambition, as I said, to, to constantly grow, to, to build power. Where does this power come from? Well, I have wealth. I need to invest it. And if I invest it in my own country, you know, at some point my market gets saturated and I can't make as much money as I want. So good capitalism says, well, I invested in other countries, but the problem there is I might lose it because there could be competition or other countries you know, um, could take away my property. And so the imperialist, uh, in a sense, allies themselves with the government and says, come in and give me your armies to support these other countries, to support my takeover of these other countries, uh, to support my business in these other countries so I can extract their resources and sell to them and do so without risk. And so we take this business idea, right, of expansion and expansion, expansion, and we apply it to politics. And we see in this period from 1884 to 1914, incredible uh, growth of the different empires, the, the British Empire, the German Empire, the, the um, Belgian Empire, and, and others. And this incredible growth, she says, was an inherent insanity. It was a contradiction in it. Because on the one hand, if you constantly grow, right, um, you you are 
increasing your power astronomically. You want to annex the stars. You want to expand. On the other hand, as you grow, uh, you lose the ability to have any limits. Uh, you, 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 you lose the national state where you came from, the, na- the nation state where you came from, uh, has, has less and less ability uh, to, to limit you because you're, 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 you're out there expanding beyond the borders. And so um, there's a kind of ultimate contradiction and insanity uh, in this. And, and she thinks that this insanity, this embrace of power over limits, of the ultimate expansion of power over limits um, is, is, is very much at the heart of uh, imperialism and as an element of totalitarianism. How does this work? Let me just sort of st- guide us through it. She makes a distinction between older ideas of imperialism and modern imperialism. So, you know, we always think of the Roman Empire as an empire, but the Roman Empire for her um, was an empire based on law. When the Romans conquered other people, they would incorporate them into the empire, but but let them live according to uh, certain you know elements of their own law. But they became Roman uh, subjects, and there was a common law that they all followed. There was a law of peoples, so that while the people kept their own laws, I said they also followed a common law with the Romans. Um, and so the law was simply an imperial law of governance but one that allowed for the integration of plural peoples within it. In modern imperialism, it's quite different because the modern imperialism based on the nation state, the nation state cannot integrate diverse peoples into them. Why not? Because if you're German and you take over, you know, some African nations, if they are going to become German and become part of the German people, they have to become, they have to assimilate and they're supposed to, and they're supposed to be giving you now consent for German laws. Well, you're not going to do that because they're different. They have a different way of life. And so, um, imperialism in the modern sense, whether it's German or French or English, well, French is a little different. So German or English, imperialism in this modern sense says that we have to assimilate the people into ourselves. And so, the authority of modern empires is grounded in an ideology of domination instead of one of mere obedience. The Romans said to people, you can still live as you want, just obey us, and you still have rights and follow rules. But the modern idea of assimilation requires, of of imperialism, requires a kind of domination and assimilation. And since authority is based on consent in the nation state, the subjugated powers must actually be made to consent. And the only way to enforce that consent is tyranny. And so on page 125, she says, to enforce consent rather than justice is to degenerate into tyranny. And what she means is that imperialism doesn't simply try and do justice. It doesn't let people be. And as long as they obey, let them live in their own way. It says they have to consent just like us because of this principle of the nation state. And thus, we have to force them to be like us, assimilate them to be like us. And so the novelty of this modern imperialism can be understood, I think, in at least six steps. I'm sure we could do more, but here's six. One is expansion. Expansion is a permanent and supreme aim of politics, and it's the central political idea of imperialism. That's on 125. The second is that this idea of imperialism is a new concept in the long history of political thought and action. It is distinct from both colonial or mercantile looting and also from Roman imperial integration. It's not colonialism in which we simply take from people, but let them be. It's not looting, but it's also not Roman imperialism. It's something new. And the reason for this newness, this is the third step, is that it's not a political concept at all, imperialism, but has its origin, she says on page 125 again, has its origin in the realm of business operations and business speculation, where expansion meant the permanent broadening of an industrial production and economic transactions, characteristic of the 19th century. Because it's a business and not a politics, what do we do with businesses? We grow them. We get, grow profit, grow, grow our markets, etc. But politics is supposed to be limited because there are moral or ethical or institutional or consensual limits on what we should do politically, not in business, but in politics. 
Um, and so politics, she says, I mean, imperialism has this business-like aspect such that it has none of the grandeur of the old Roman Empire. It's driven simply by economics or expansion. And so on 132, she says, its only grandeur is that it, is, is that it vanquished the nation state in the nation's losing battle against it. In a sense, the nation state, which was limited and bounded and had institutional limits and consensual limits, is destroyed by imperialism. And as it is destroyed by imperialism, what she calls the imperial factor on page 133, the people who go and rule outside the nation state in their imperial lands, um, rule by local administration and by decree, and they um, continually try and avoid the parliamentary liberal limits of the nation state. Thus, the last element, the sixth element is that imperialists understood that modern rule over subject peoples leads to rule by decree and arbitrary bureaucracy, and thus the end of the nation state. The point is that for her, imperialism was born when the ruling class and capitalist societies came up against the national limitations in economic expansion. As I said, they had excess capital, they sent it out. And then you had to mobilize the state armies to guarantee profits. That's, that's the way she understands how expansion begins the process of destroying the nation state. Okay. Part two, uh, called power in the bourgeoisie, um, is in my view, maybe the single most important section of this whole book. And it's, it's probably maybe one of the harder ones, but it's it's neat. We need to understand it. The point is that instead of in part one, where we're talking about the economic grounds of, of, of imperialism through expansion of capital and the exportation both of capital and of armies to support that capital, in this, we're looking at um, imperialism as the first stage in the rule of the bourgeoisie rather than the last stage of the capitalism. And the key term here and the key idea here is power. The deepest desire of imperialism, she writes on page 135, is expansion of political power without the foundation of a body politic, right? I've said that already with part one. We want to expand political power to other countries to support our economic goals but without expanding the foundation of the body politic. And so we have this weird situation where we have to rule over subject peoples. The bourgeoisie, which is the group that leads the imperialist revolution, their deepest desire, she says, is simply an empty desire to have money beget money. This is on page 137. Try and understand what she's saying here. The bourgeoisie wants power. How do you get power? You have money, beget money. You want to be able to have money, send it overseas, and have it bring back more money. You have superfluous money and superfluous people. Imperialism began because of the emergence of um, bringing back money simply out of, out of money. Why is power so important here? Because power becomes the essence of politics when it is separated from the political community in which it should serve, right? Power becomes the essence of politics when it is separated from the political community which it should serve. This is on 138. So instead of serving a political community, whether it be Germany or England or France, power in the hands of the bourgeoisie and imperialism seeks to um, simply serve the bourgeoisie to allow them to get more money, to have money beget money. If the secret desire of the bourgeoisie is to have money beget money, the bourgeoisie thinks economically, that is in power. Power is just amount having money beget money. The political need of the bourgeoisie is to limit and eliminate government. Why? Because government creates ethical or legal restraints on economic activity. So what the bourgeoisie wanted was to 
maintain government as the ultimate protector of private property and the right of contract, but get rid of government, or at least get rid of government as that which limit its ability to um, uh, use the well-organized police force of the state to make money in an unlimited way through imperialism. Um, and she says that this desire for power, the one publicly honored political principle of the bourgeoisie is power, has its root in the thinking of Thomas Hobbes, right? Who wrote many books, including Leviathan. The desire for power, Hobbes says, is the fundamental passion of man, but not just man, of bourgeois man. This is Arendt's reading of Hobbes. Hobbes, she thinks, is the political philosopher of the bourgeoisie. If man's aim is to acquire power, he has an obstacle, not only the state, but other men. All men are equal insofar as they can kill each other, Hobbes says. So the final end of man is to institute a power over himself that protects his right to expand his own private power. That's the state or the liberal state uh, or Leviathan. The paradox at the heart of Hobbes' Leviathan is that you have a community based solely on power and the acquisition of power that needs a state to create stability so that I can acquire power. But if there's too much stability, I can't acquire more power and thus I will lose my power. And so um, a state must constantly grow and yet there also needs to be a certain um, stability to it. But what Hobbes understood is that the realization that power accumulation was the only guarantee for stability of so-called economic laws made progress irresistible. Arendt writes on 143, you needed to constantly have progress. Um, and yet, if you're going to constantly have progress, right, you can't have a state limiting you. And that's where power leads to imperialism and leads to uh, acquisition of power across um, across the across the globe, um, the unstoppable search for power, the generative force behind imperialism, and ultimately, in her words, in her mind, totalitarianism. What this means is that Hobbes understands bourgeois man, man, as a power-seeking proton. We constantly need to um, augment and increase our power. And if we're going to constantly augment and increase our power, uh, we cannot have limits. And uh, and this is, for Arendt, the sort of fundamental um, shift in mankind that happens in the age of imperialism, that we begin to see man not as a rational creature, not as a creature uh, with other ends, but simply uh, seeking power. If the elite want to seek power and are based in a philosophy of power, she says on page 144, they need to destroy all limits, morals, but also states and nation states that would live, limit them. And thus, this desire for power um, is the underlying philosophical justification for tyranny that underlines Hobbes's philosophy, which is going to um, elevate Leviathan as a tyrant over us. And so this is, this is the philosophical engine of, of Arendt's thinking about imperialism. Imperialism is the end of limits in politics, and it's based on a new philosophy of man where the entire drive of man is to increase their power, and in increasing their power, um, uh, overcome all limits. And this is what uh, drives the imperialist era um, for Hannah Arendt. What this means is that as, uh, as we end the limits of the nation state and we enter this, enter this era of imperialist expansion, we know that our countries are secretly disintegrating, she says on 147. And here we're in part three, the alliance between um, the mob and capital. Innocently enough, she says, expansion of feared purse is an outlet for excess capital production. But as it does, and as uh, we, as, as people uh, in these countries, we begin to um, need 
a new sense of nationalism, a new sense of belonging, a new sense of 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 what holds us together as Englishmen or Germans or Belgians. How do we do that? We begin to see ourselves as superior to the people we are um, dominating in our imperialist uh, idea. And this gives rise to what she calls the mob. It allows the people who go out and fight these wars. It allows the people go out and um, administer uh, the territories, the imperial territories, um, the superfluous men, the debris of every class to imagine themselves as not as Germans or English, but as, um, or at least not as Germans or English as part of a nation state, but as a race, right? As a race of conquering people who have actually a right to rule over uh, the people in the uh, imperialist colonies that they are ruling over. And this, this idea of imperialism in which we divide mankind by races into a master and a slave race into a white or a colored race um, is what allows the mob as they go around the world to maintain their sense of coherence and belonging to uh, their home country. And so she says nationalism, which was should have been destroyed by imperialism, was saved by uh, oppressing foreigners and unifying the mob under a tribal nationalism and racism. And this tribal national and race nationalism and racism is going to be what leads into uh, the kind of racism, uh, ideological racism that we'll uh, experience in the next few chapters. One last uh, point, I, well, two last points I want to make. One is that on page uh, 154, she talks about how the decline of nations begins with the corruption of the civil services, the civil service, the, the bureaucrats who, who, who work for us. They, these people are professionals and they have honor and self-respect and they put the interests of the country above themselves. But um, as the decline of nations happens and as in each nation, a bourgeois class asserts itself as the ruling class which has all the power and takes the power away from lower classes. The civil service becomes not a servant of the nation as a whole, but only of the upper class or the highest class. And when that happens, the corruption of the civil service happens. The only way that people serving in the civil service can once again feel as if they're serving something higher than simply class interest, but a national interest, is to then become imperialists, to aim to rule inferior peoples. She ends this chapter with a discussion again of Hobbes and racism. And what she says is that uh, Hobbes himself uh, may not have been racist or didn't, didn't make race uh, central to his thinking. She says the philosophy of Hobbes, it is true, this is on 157, contains nothing of modern race doctrines, which not only stir up the mob, but in their totalitarian form, outline very clearly the forms of organization through which humanity could carry the endless process of capital and power accumulation through to its logical end and self-destruction. But Hobbes, she says, at least provided political thought with the prerequisite for all race doctrines. That is the exclusion in principle of the idea of humanity. Why do we lose the idea of humanity? Because if man is simply about power, if everything is about seeking to increase our power, then the most natural thing, the most plausible idea is that brown, yellow, or black races and white races are descended from some other species of apes than the white race, and that we're all in a war of all against all for power. And if she says, if it should prove to be true that we are imprisoned in Hobbes' endless process of power accumulation, then the organization of the mob will inevitably take the form of transformation of nations into races, for, the, for there is, under the conditions of an accumulating society, no other unifying bond. If all of our societies are about accumulation, about power, the only thing that bonds us together is that we are a race 
that will beat other races. This, she says, becomes the foundation for modern racism. And that's how she ends this chapter where she says racism may indeed carry out the doom of the Western world. Um, okay, I will stop there uh, and look forward to your questions. This is a, a complicated chapter, but I think it's deeply important. So um, let's see if we can make some sense of it. Bruce. Uh, yes, I, uh, thanks very much. I'd like to just make an additional observation uh, about her reading of Hobbes and yeah. and how we, how we might interpret it. Uh, I don't disagree with, with what has been said, um, but I do think that maybe um, more emphasis can be placed on a couple of things. One that I would, I would suggest is that um, she also uh, mentions that something is very distinctive about Hobbes. And she uses, uh, you know, sort of interesting language that isn't, she doesn't throw around lightly. Um, she says, has a sentence somewhere, never before in the history of political thought has anybody done this. Um, so she is not only saying that Hobbes is a kind of early reflecting mirror that we can use to help better understand 19th century bourgeois uh, political economy and, and politics. Um, I, I think she's. I think she's um, signaling that there's there's something deeper going on uh, in in Hobbes's work itself, and you know what might that be? And I, I think one of the elements of it that uh, that we should we we should take you know think think more about and talk more about perhaps later on uh, is not both what you said, Roger, but also. The the radical um, uh, in individualism uh, of of Hobbes, uh, his notion of the kind of uh, no, there's no basis for real relationality. There's no common good. There's no common anything really. Um, there's only the self interest of strategic thinking and manipulation of others to promote your own your own benefit. Um, that that's an element of Hobbes's thought that. Um, I think it, it, it enables Hobbes to be a good reflecting mirror for later bourgeois thought. But also, I, I, I think it, it's plausible to take uh, Leviathan, to take Hobbes as actually being engaged not in the uh, sort of recognition of the rise of the bourgeoisie and all the implications that that has for transforming uh, real politics uh, uh, into into power and nothing but power. Um, but I think we can also maybe uh, read uh, Leviathan uh, or Hobbes's work as a whole uh, as a kind of philosophical anthropology. I don't think he was interested in in individualism and this and limitless seeking of power, endless seeking of power, simply as an ideology that. Um, historically and has promoted the interests of certain groups right. against others. I think that the philosophical uh, aim of Leviathan uh, is to offer a, um, a deeper sense of not what we humans have become historically, but what we humans are essentially. Yeah. Can I, let me, let me, let me jump in there, Bruce, because I understand your question and I want to take it seriously. Because uh, I think it's, yeah, I think RN would would disagree, um, and I just want to explain why. So I think where you're talking about uh, is pages one, page one thirty nine, and uh, this discussion um, really would go through one thirty nine to one forty three. But let's just take a look at some of these passages directly. Um, and 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 I'll and I'll try and um, speak to Bruce's question here as well. Uh, on 139, she writes, "It is significant that modern believers in power are in a complete accord with the philosophy of the only great thinker who ever attempted to derive public good from private interest, and who, for the sake of private good, conceived and outlined a commonwealth whose basis and ultimate end is accumulation of power." So the only great thinker, right, who seeks to derive public good from private interest. 
and who, for the sake of private good, creates a commonwealth um, that will allow for the ultimate accumulation of power. In the next paragraph, she says, there is hardly a single bourgeois moral standard which has not been anticipated by the unequaled magnificence of Hobbes's logic. And I point you to the word logic. He gives an almost complete picture, not of man, but of the bourgeois man, an analysis in which in 300 years has neither been outdone nor excelled, outdated nor excelled. Reason is nothing but reckoning, right? Whereas traditionally, man was thought to be a rational creature. Hobbes says he's a reckoning one. He's the one who simply reckons what's what will what will get me the best price, what will get me the most power. Um, a free subject or a free will, he says, are words without meaning. They're absurd. Man is simply his value or his worth or his price. Another paragraph down, power, according to Hobbes, is the accumulated control that permits the individual to fix prices and regulate supply and demand. So Bruce says, right, this is not just anthropology. This is what man is. Um, for Arendt, it's neither, right? It's certainly not what man is. She doesn't think that there's a nature to man or an essence to man. She thinks that for a large part of history, man was thought of as a rational being in, the, in line with Aristotle um, or a religious being or other things. Uh, she thinks, um, she also doesn't think it's an anthropology. She doesn't think when Hobbes wrote this, that this was already the case. She thinks this is a work of logic. Remember, Hobbes is a mathematician. He comes out of mathematics and he starts with a problem. And so on the bottom of the next page, 140, she tells you where she thinks this problem came from. She says, it would be a grave injustice to Hobbes and his dignity as a philosopher to consider this picture of man an attempt at a psychological realism or philosophical truth. It's neither a philosophical truth nor a kind of anthropology, a psychological realism. The fact is that Hobbes is interested in neither, but concerned exclusively with the political structure itself. And he depicts the features of man according to the needs of the Leviathan. And this is the key to her reading, right? She doesn't, he doesn't start with an anthropology of man. He starts with a form of government, a tyranny. Why does he start with a form of government and tyranny, Leviathan? Because he wants order. But he wants order with a certain amount of freedom within it. This is what liberalism offers as a form of government, a balance between order and freedom. For arguments and convictions' sake, Hobbes presents his political outline as though he started from a realistic insight into man, a being that, quote, desires power after power, end quote. And as though he proceeded from this insight to a plan for a body politic best fitted for the power-thirsty animal. But the actual process, the only process in which his concept of man makes sense and goes beyond the obvious banality of an assumed human wickedness, is precisely the opposite. This new body politic was conceived for the benefit of the new bourgeois society as it emerged in the 17th century. So what she's saying is, as bourgeoisie, as the bourgeoisie emerged in the 17th century and people wanted to make money and compete with each other to have more money, she said Hobbes developed a form of government which would allow for that competition of private interests, allow for um, man and men within the government and people within the government to have their different interests and pursue them. Um, in a regulated way. And that was the Leviathan. And so she thinks um, that he doesn't begin either with human nature or with a psychology of man, but with how can we create a government uh, that would work for bourgeois man? Um, uh, uh, it, you, you need a government that um, has a monopoly on power uh, and provides in exchange for that a conditional guarantee against being killed, so security, uh, but also allows people to pursue their power within liberal limits as much as they can. And that's how um, she thinks uh, this 
Hobbes imagines this idea of, of politics. Uh, Vigdis. Yes, it reminds me of uh, to always read Arendt contextually, the way she used her different words in different connections. So, so always, because when she defines it, it's, it seems to me that it's often that they have been unclear in the use of them. And then she, she makes a kind of definitions and make this distinction. But what I was going to say, or something about or ask something about is um, I think this uh, chapter was incredibly interesting, especially her her thinking around capitalism. And I wonder, she says, uh, and that is in the Dreyfus uh, chapter, where she makes the distinction between the people and the mob. And she then says, quote, while the people in all great revolutions fight for true representations, the mob always will shout for the strong man, the great leader. And then I thought about that in connection with what she says here on page 145, 146, about all the so-called liberal concepts of politics. And that is all the pre-imperialist political notions of the bourgeois. And she, among what she says, she says that um, uh, they express the these bourgeois, they express the bourgeois instinctive distrust of an innate hostility to public affairs. And she ends this uh, paragraph with saying, the old standards give way to the extent that automatically growing wealth actually replaces political action. And what I wonder if you can say something, to me, this is a very good description of what we see a lot of today. It is an it's people not being interested in participation in in politics, not in public affairs, but often we see them following those great men as she talks about the mob does. So this alliance between the mob and the capitalist, isn't that something we see maybe even to a greater extent today? And a kind of disregard for politicians as such, and also a disregard for being part of this political domain in a way. It's kind of don't don't involve us in politics. We want to, to enhance, we want to follow our private interests. I don't know if I, I managed to make something some meaning in that. I felt it was a bit Jumping up from here to there. Yeah, no, it's okay. Um, the the question of of the mob, uh, you know, is is a good one, and and one we'll we'll have to keep coming back to. Um, she um, in this in this particular chapter, uh, she she talks on page one fifty about how um, older than the superfluous wealth was another byproduct of capitalist production, right? So not only does capitalism produce wealth and profit, but also the human debris that every crisis following invariably upon each period of industrial growth eliminated permanently from producing society. Men who had become permanently idle were as superfluous to the community as the owners of superfluous wealth. They were an actual menace to society. The new fact in the imperialist era is that these two superfluous forces, superfluous capital and superfluous working power, joins hands and left the country together. So um, uh, these superfluous people, right, um, these superfluous workers uh, fled the country and became, you know, workers, army, people, enforcers in other places. Um, uh she talks on the next page on 151. She says, from now on, the mob begotten by the monstrous accumulation of capital accompanied its begetter on these voyages of discovery where nothing was discovered but new possibilities for investment. The owners of superfluous wealth were the only men who could use the superfluous men who came from the four corners of the earth. Together, they established the first paradise of parasites whose lifeblood was gold. Um, again, this mob is is the people who are 
spat out in a sense uh, by capitalism, um, uh, and 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 don't have a role. They're superfluous, and seek to uh, um, and 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 find meaning uh, in imperialist adventures. Um, in the next page on 152, about eight lines down, she says, in Marxist terms, this new phenomenon of an alliance between mob and capital seemed so unnatural, so obviously in conflict with the doctrine of class struggle, that the actual dangers of the imperialist attempt to divide mankind into master races and slave races were completely overlooked. So the point is that the mob was not the working class, right? It was not a class structure. It was those members of the working class that no longer had a role and those members of the bourgeois and those members of the upper class or the aristocracy. They all joined this kind of mobbed mob. And um, and as as such, they got they, they went on these imperialist adventures because there was no place for them. They were superfluous in the nation state. And um, they began to see themselves as a kind of tribal um uh racist nation um oppressing the people that they went to um uh, rule over uh you know you're asking do we see that today right um do we see um a, a mob of superfluous people um who uh are in a sense um, go on adventures or go or, or leave where they are superfluous and um, and aim to uh, 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 find a kind of tribal or racial um, consciousness. Uh, it's a good question, right? Um, I mean, it's you know what we see around the world right now are um, uh, people who feel that the globalized cosmopolitan economies that their countries are in are not serving their interests, and they are um, really uh, rebelling uh, against that. Um, are they? Uh, are these superfluous people? I don't know. Uh, it's an interesting question. Are they? Um, are they? Uh, outside of uh are they are they outside of the nation i mean many of them are trying to return to an idea of the nation and a kind of new nationalism um uh and 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 i think there's a mob-like element to that but i don't think it's the same uh i don't think it's the same kind of um um imperialist movement uh, that she's describing in these pages, but maybe I I have it wrong. I don't know, Vigdis. What do you think? No, I think you're right in that. What I saw especially maybe is that um, it is those who follow their private interest have haven't interest for the world, so to say. And the, in the politics, the political sphere is about an interest for for the world, and that goes together with the capitalist has this private interest. And then they got these people who follow them. And I think what you see in the, in the countries where you have more and more towards authoritarian uh, kind of people who have who are in power, power in this way, as Orrin describes it here, may join these two groups together. It's what I see. I, I don't think it's a kind of imperialist, but it certainly is a kind of going back to a kind of nationalism and i think it's more it's what they believe can make their life better it seems to me they join with the, these forces so i don't think they are right in that bill but i think it's what they believe and why they follow so yeah that's okay thank you vigdis um i we're uh we're out of time so thank you all for, for being here. Thank you for uh, uh, coming down this journey with us and enjoy reading Hannah Arendt. We'll see you next week. We're reading for next week, um, uh, Race Thinking Before Racism. 
uh, chapter six. See you then. Thanks very much. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure to follow the podcast and leave us a like in case you enjoyed this week's chapter reading. This is Reading Hannah Arendt with Roger Berkowitz and we hope you'll be back next time. If you'd like to participate in discussions, please become a member of the Hannah Arendt Center and join our weekly reading groups. We'd love to see you every Friday. For more info, visit our website at hac.bard.edu and follow us on Twitter at Arendt Center or Instagram at Hannah Arendt Center at Bard. My name is Jana Mada and I look forward to welcoming you back next week for another episode of Reading Hannah Arendt with Roger Berkowitz. Goodbye and auf Wiedersehen.